Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 169, Strategies of the Esoteric in the Hellenism of the Emperor Julian. Exclusion and Pluralism in a Late Antique Polytheism. In the last two episodes, we got a picture of the political situation and ideological commitments of the Emperor Julian, and saw that the Emperor was acting, among other things, as an agent of the gods on Earth, and of the Sun God in particular, continuing his family commitment to Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, which arguably his predecessor Constantine, his uncle, had also been trying to continue in his adoption of Christianity, but that's another story. In this episode, I wanted to go back to the Emperor's religious reform project and see what we can say about its esotericism, and specifically to reflect on the things that happen when an esoteric religious movement attempts to take over the levers of power. Here we're talking about Julian's Iamblichian theurgist conception, his, his religion that he puts together, known as Hellenism. But there are useful parallels to be found more generally, I think, in the dynamics that occur when this sort of thing happens. So we're going to be talking about Julian, but we might want to extend the observations we make to, for example, Christianity, or Islam, or Mormonism, or uh, Nazi uh, race religion, all kinds of things might be uh, interesting and relevant. We also want to talk about Hellenism at large, a key idea for Julian, what it meant, how it was contested, and what Julian did with it. Polymnia Athanasiadi's book, Julian and Hellenism, is a big guide for my thinking in this episode, and gentle listeners are encouraged to go and read that book, but not everything in this episode comes from Athanasiadi, nor do I agree with everything she says. So that's uh, some background information. Also uh, should mention that the, I think, one translation from Julian that we're going to give here is from Wilmer Cave Wright. Now, what are we not talking about in this episode? We're not talking about how many later esoteric groups from perhaps uh, medieval and Renaissance and early modern uh, flirters with Hellenic polytheism to the many modern neo-pagans, Viking metal bands, and so forth, who have adopted Julian as a kind of pagan saint of the past, putting him on a pedestal as a hero of the anti-Christian resistance. This is something worth studying in the history of religions, but it's not what we want to talk about today. We're not even going to address the very real and vexing problem of why the works of Julian, including his notorious anti-Christian tract against the Galileans, continued to be read and copied in the medieval East Roman world, such that we still possess them. That one is hard to interpret, and the temptation is very strong to posit an esoteric underground current of East Roman intellectuals who kept up a rather, well, pagan interest in all things Julianic right through the Middle Ages. But we're going to resist that temptation for now. Don't worry, the underground pagans of the East Roman world will return on the podcast in a big way. But today we're back in the 4th century, looking back to the reign of Constantine in the 320s, while keeping an uneasy eye on the horizon of the future, where Theodosius, near the end of the century, is going to consolidate Trinitarian orthodoxy and politics and 
Justinian eventually will weld Orthodoxy and Romanitas, Romanism, Romanness, into a single monolithic absolutism in the 5th and 6th centuries. In the history of European religions, the late antique period is one of the most fascinating for the dialectics it presents between absolute theoretical discourses and pluralistic realities. So let's look at a historical story told by Christian historians. People like Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, writing in the 4th century, and his many later colleagues about the process of Christianization of the empire, looking backward from the period after Julian's reign. It goes like this. Christianity is made official under Constantine, getting his formulation as orthodoxy at the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE, really taking root in the later 4th century under the emperor Theodosius I, and reaching a kind of supercharged hegemony thereafter, until everyone is a Christian. We see in these writers of church and Roman history a new totalizing discourse of salvation, which was previously the province of the mystery religions and other non-state social organs in the Greco-Roman world. And we see this doctrine of salvation become, for the first time, associated with a political absolutism. To the Christians of late antiquity, the story goes, they and they alone represented both Romanitas and the kingdom of heaven. And the two were kind of overlapping. The pagans of the empire, or Hellenes, as they became increasingly known from about the 3rd century onwards, really in the 4th century, this, this term Hellene for meaning polytheist becomes widespread among Christians. These Hellenes were thenceforth excluded from the discourses of power. In theory, both contemporary and subsequent, a line had been drawn in the sand. Political and ecclesiastical orthodoxy were identified. They were the same thing. And the pagan other was henceforth a dwindling historical afterthought. Now, is this what actually happened? No, of course not, gentle listener. It's a truism that such black and white demarcations do not represent historical realities. This theoretical line in the sand has led to widespread oversimplification in historical discussion of this period. But the monolithic formulation isn't something modern historians have made up. It's actually drawn from discourses of the time. In other words, this is what the Christian sources from Eusebius onward want us to think happened, or maybe what they think happened in their kind of divinely guided uh, view of how history works. For the following discussion, it will be important to keep in mind that the absolutes being bandied about by the debaters of this time, late anti-Christian intellectuals, but also polytheists, and in particular by the Emperor Julian himself, for it is he. These absolutes are only real in the minds and writings of their proponents, or at least they only start out as real in their minds. They thus represent historical realities in that they framed the worldviews and informed the actions of their formulators, not in that they actually described late antique society as it was. In other words, the absolute truth, what we have called orthodox thinking here on the podcast, that arose in late antiquity, began first as an idea, not as a fact. But it was such a powerful idea that it eventually became something like a fact. Though as we shall see as the podcast progresses, the hegemonic reign of orthodox Christianities 
will be continually disrupted by, among other things, persistent eruptions of various Christian esotericisms within the ranks, as well as occasional recrudescences from time to time of actual Greco-Romanizing polytheism, or at least a suspiciously religious-looking engagement with ancient polytheism within Christendom. And that's before we even get to the highly dualizing uh, heresies of the Middle Ages and so on and so forth. But it's worth emphasizing for listeners who, like me, have a romantic love of the figure of the emperor and for the idea of what might have been had he not died on his ill-fated and, let's face it, ill-thought-out campaign against the Sasanians in 363, it's worth emphasizing that the new forms of absolutism evolving in Roman political discourse were not the fault of the Christians. Or at least that's my reading. For while certain Christian theorists of the time defined themselves firstly against polytheism and Hellenism, and secondly against the doctrines of the heretics, which is going to be your enemy within, right? The discourse of absolutism in which they operated was fundamentally a late Roman one, not simply a Christian one. So it's not just the Christians. Indeed, we see something not dissimilar in the Sasanian state-sponsored Neo-Mazdaism, or Zoroastrian revival by the state, happening at exactly the same time, which makes me wonder whether the rise of political-stroke religious absolutism wasn't just a late antique Western Eurasian phenomenon. Uh, Be that as it may, our interview with Jeremy Swist spent a lot of time on Constantine's predecessor, Diocletian. Predecessor as sole emperor, I should say. There's a lot of, you know, little Augustian Caesars running around in the meantime, but that just complicates things. Let's say predecessor as sole emperor. And we saw in the reign of Diocletian major moves toward the sort of one truth, one state, one emperor, military dictatorship, which would become the pattern for Christian Rome in the Middle Ages. But Diocletian was no Christian. And official Christianity was in no way on his radar. He actually persecuted the Christians as well as the Manichees. So Diocletian was a Jupiter emperor. Constantine was a sun emperor. Later, he became a Jesus son emperor or something like that. And Julian, for all his rhetoric about restoring a Roman golden age, was a late antique absolutist son emperor, just like his uncle Constantine. But while new types of exclusion and new types of kind of uh, more rigid social hierarchy were being implemented across the empire in late antiquity, they were not and could not be absolute in reality. The reality of social life in the late antique Roman Empire, insofar as it's possible to generalize, was anything but monolithic. It was, on the contrary, a very model of pluralism, a fact with which all those Christian and trad alike, who in some way supported the evolving paradigm of absolutism in religion and politics, were forced to come to terms. You had to kind of figure out how to deal with the actual sloppiness of late Roman culture. There was, in fact, no single Christianity, you know, we can start there, but rather interconfessional interactions and struggles between varying Christianities, a sometimes ruthless process that only in retrospect would consolidate itself as the holy and orthodox Catholic Church in the West and the various orthodoxies in the East. And the heresy would never stop, needless to say, even after those faiths were consolidated. I hope the podcast so far in its coverage of the um, fascinating history of early Christianity up to the 4th century has made this abundantly clear, that uh, Christianity, although there are 
commonalities across the board, like the obsession with this guy called Jesus, that make it possible to talk about it as Christianity, as one thing, nevertheless is so unbelievably varied that to talk about it as a single religious movement is eh, quite difficult. It, it's easy in the kind of retrospective view of someone like Eusebius, for whom the whole story is, you know, tied off with a neat bow at either end. But for a historian, it's a, it's a mess. Are they Jews? Are they Gnostics? Are they Christians? What the heck's going on? You know the deal. And likewise, the high-end intellectual pagan thinkers, the later Platonists especially, attempted to solve the problems raised by new trends by propounding unifying and exclusionary discourses of their own. We saw this already in the second century with Celsus's rebuttal of Christianity, the true account. The title says it all, right? And I think there's a lot of general truth in E.R. Dodd's observation. Now, this is not with reference to Celsus, but much more with reference to the later Platonists, like Proclus, whom we'll be talking about soon in the podcast. The later Platonists desired to create, quote, a single Hellenic philosophy, which should supersede the jarring warfare of the sects, end of quote. There is no one to whom this applies better than the Emperor Julian. We should beware, however, of mistaking these elite discourses of power, the uh, late Platonists talking about, you know, the perfect society and the nature of reality and stuff like that, with social reality. If we fast forward a thousand years, give or take, one of the main criticisms leveled by Protestant reformers against Catholicism will be that Catholicism contained loads of paganism, and sometimes also that it contained loads of Platonism. And the Protestants weren't exactly wrong from a historical perspective. So, in other words, Catholicism does arise in the late antique uh, Roman world, and it is thus full of messy borrowing and bricolage. Ideologically, needless to say, the Catholic Church's official line utterly rejects both polytheism, or rather paganism, as they call it, and Platonism. But socially, ritually, doctrinally, historically, Catholicism developed in late antiquity, and so it's a pluralistic hodgepodge, pretending to be a unique, sui generis, pure discourse. Now, I don't want to give the impression that late antiquity is uniquely hodgepodge-ish, because all cultural times and places in the world are hodgepodge-ish. Every time an individual meets another individual and they have a conversation, some hodgepodging goes on of their views and ideas and their culture, as it were. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that big changes were afoot from the you know mid-third century onwards in Roman society and in Roman thought. And when you come out the other end with this new thing called Christendom, and that, you know, that's a big deal for Europe, that you, you know something big happened, right? And that's the period we're trying to look at, the period that, that leads from the free and easy flow of Mediterranean traditional religions and philosophies into this new thing, Christendom. Now, it was in the context of this uh, messy, problematic, religious and political pluralism that in the year 361 CE, Julian, the apostate, or the renewer, the restorer, the emperor Flavius Claudius Julianus, declared a policy of universal religious toleration within the Roman Empire. <laughs> a move interpreted by the contemporary historian Ammianus and by most contemporary scholars nowadays as an anti-Christian move, 
as we discussed in previous episode. So, in other words, he's, instead of allowing one faction of Christians to dominate all the others, he's saying, have at it, boys, and they're all immediately at each other's throats, which is something that very much weakens the position of the Christians as a whole. He also forbade Christians from participating in the educational establishment from the cultural production of Hellenism, and that's a very important thing we're going to talk about in a moment. But let's just pause here and notice that official toleration and official exclusion could both be used as means of exclusion or as means of suppression or persecution. Julian presented himself and probably saw himself as pursuing a restoration in politics, in culture, in religion, in education, and in philosophy, and many other categories, which are not separable in his mind, but can all actually be grouped together under the rubric of Hellenism. So this is a restoration of Hellenism. But the uses put to the late antique discourse of Hellenism by Julian actually constitute an entirely new arrangement of traditional topoi, and among other things, a new universalist state religion, one which pretty much died stillborn, but which nevertheless will have long-lasting echoes within esoteric discourses to be covered as the podcast progresses. This new religion, again, made up of elements of old religions, but refashioned into something quite new, was based or structured fundamentally on the thought of the late Platonists, especially of Iamblichus, and involved a hierarchic discourse whereby the many, the majority of citizens of the Roman Empire, followed the traditional gods of their fathers and also were sort of linked through a common faith in an overarching savior god, which normally for Julian is either Asclepius or Helios Mithras or Asclepius sort of associated with Helios Mithras. But the elite follow a course of Hellenic paideia, education, which culminated not only in the polished art of Greek rhetoric, which was the key educational accomplishment in the later Roman Empire, but in access to esoteric truths hidden from the uneducated, the apaideotoi, a term that features heavily in Plato already as those who just do not know. Julian's Hellenism can usefully thus be described as an esoteric state Hellenism or esoteric state religion. And that is what we shall be exploring in this episode. How does that work and how does that relate to Hellenism more broadly? So it's going to be worthwhile to return to the concept of Hellenism as a cultural concept. It's a very, very complex concept. So um, there's a lots of moving parts to talk about. We want to recall some of the places where it's already appeared in the podcast and get a feel for what the term meant in everyday parlance before we look at the deeply esoteric elite philosophic religion, which it was also for Julian. The term Hellenismus first appears in our records in the 4th century BCE, so way back when, and mostly applied to the correct usage of Greek by foreigners in the polyglot Hellenistic states. Most basically, it meant the ability to speak Greek well when it wasn't your native language. And we even have um, the rhetorician Isocrates, not to be confused with Socrates, saying that Hellenes are not born, they're made, essentially, talking about this phenomenon of people becoming Greeks by mastering the Greek language and Greek ways and so on and so forth. The term was used, acute listeners will recall from episode 11, disparagingly by identitarian Jews in the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid regime, 
to distinguish the Greekizing Jews, the Greekizing Jews, who for the Maccabees were collaborators with the Seleucid regime, from the true sons of Abraham, who were the Jews. So we have actually, funnily enough, the first appearance of the word Judaismos, the uh, Greek word for Jewry, in this very passage. So the irony that it appears in Greek in a polemic against Greekness creeping into Judaism, the pure Jewish uh, identity, is, you know, a very poignant irony. We need to look very carefully at people's identity claims on the one hand. We are the pure Jews who reject all that which is Hellenic. And on the other hand, their actual cultural practices. We are writing about our pure Jewishness and rejection of all things Hellenic in, uh, well, <clears throat> Greek. With the growth of Christianity beyond its Jewish milieu. So now we're, you know, fast forwarding. Even more complex dialectics of cultural identity accreted to our term, used in various ways by Christians who sought to exist within and or Christianize Hellenism, such as Justin Martyr, um, our earliest known sort of Christian apologist writing in Rome, Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria, and Gregory of Nazianzos, who are all good friends of the listeners to this podcast. We haven't done a special episode on Gregory, but he was, you'll recall, the friend of Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Basil of Caesarea, the third great Cappadocian father, and the one who was really, really accomplished in all the classical arts and, you know, could quote uh, Euripides from memory and had a, a beautiful turn of phrase. This is Gregory of Nazianzos. So these are the early Christian intellectuals whom we've met who are really trying to figure out a way to embrace uh, Hellenism for Christianity, right? While at the same time understanding that they're doing something new and different from what those polytheists are doing. Gregory, incidentally, was a contemporary of Julian. And while they may never have met, they almost certainly rubbed shoulders in Athens in their early years as they both were studying precisely the same Hellenic education at Athens at the same time. Now, we have those Hellenizing Christian fathers. We also have those who sought, to some degree at least, to reject Hellenism, such as some of the extreme desert fathers, uh, Jerome, John Chrysostom, Augustine, and many others. Thinkers we've mentioned more in passing here and there in the podcast, who basically don't interest us as much here at the Schwepp as the esoteric Hellenizing thinkers we just mentioned. So you've got at least two positions toward Hellenism in uh, Christianity. And actually, in reality, you've got an infinite number of uh, complex interlocking cultural negotiations. The term Hellenism also, as it were by default, became a crucial identity marker for the pagan old guard as late antiquity progresses, who increasingly rallied themselves under the banner of Hellenism to define their way of life as against that of the Christians. This is exactly what Julian is doing. Traditional religious practices like sacrifice could thus be reclaimed as quintessentially Hellenic by both parties, pro- and anti-sacrifice parties. And, you know, the Christians saying that sacrifice is Hellenic is really just saying that it's polytheist or not Christian, because, of course, the Jews had sacrificed, the Romans had sacrificed, everyone in the Mediterranean region had sacrificed quite normally until very recently. So the term Hellenism is very complex in terms of Christianity. It doesn't just mean Greek to the Christians in this sort of polemical sense, though it can just mean Greek, but it can and also often mean a range of things from, you know, traditional polytheist to holder of any number of philosophically objectionable positions, 
or even a Christian who's maybe not hardline enough and is doing some traditional holiday stuff. It's like, oh, come on, that's, that's Hellenic stuff. You can't be doing that. This is from the fourth century onwards. But there's another aspect to Hellenism in late antiquity, and this is really, really important. It is a kind of pan-imperial educational standard. We've talked about this a little bit in the podcast, but let's get into it a bit more. This form of Hellenism, this meaning of Hellenism, referred to a synthesis of Greco-Roman culture, which had become in the later Roman Empire a program of education and culture encompassing literature, including a more or less set canon of classics, you know, Homer, the tragedians, etc. Philosophy, including the academic tradition of Plato, but also the Cynics, the Stoics, and others. Religion, encompassing the Greco-Roman traditional models of worship, but potentially directing that worship at a host of Hellenized, quote-unquote, foreign gods, like Isis, the great mother, Mithras, the Jewish god, under various names, and so forth. These could all be Hellenic gods. Politics, with a special reference to the Greek city-state as a model, of course later modified by existence within the Roman polity, so the political theory of Hellenism obviously has to change over time to figure out what we do with these emperors and so on. And culture in general, with reference especially to a traditional cursus of education involving all of the above concepts and expressed in the practice of oratory, the essentially Greek and even classically Greek uh, character of which had remained remarkably unchanged until Julian's time. So although we can look at you know oratory in Greek in the second sophistic and note this and that characteristic of it that is very typically second sophistic. To be honest, from a kind of alien's eye view, if you look at the rhetoric of 5th century Athens, which is seen by many as a golden era for this sort of thing, and 2nd century CE uh, Rome, eh, to an alien, they would look like they were pretty much doing the same thing, the same tricks, the same language, the same vocabulary. You know, it hasn't changed much as these things go. It was this traditional paideia, this traditional educational cursus that constituted the main criterion for calling oneself a Hellene, for having become a Hellene. And while Greek language and literature formed the basis of transmission, Greek ethnicity was really not a factor. Hellenes were made, not born. Hence, Plotinus of Alexandria, Porphyry of Tyre, Iamblichus of Chalcis, and a host of other Platonists that we've been speaking about on the podcast, of Egyptian, Phoenician, and Syriac extraction, respectively, could all be absolutely unproblematically Hellenes. Late antique Hellenism was thus elitist, but not racist. It opposed itself to barbarian culture from a stance of superiority, but what constituted barbarian had long ceased to be one's ethnic roots or place of birth. Although, you know, the prestige of certain places like Athens retained a conceptual primacy long after their actual importance had waned. So it was always kind of cool to be from Athens, for example. You could be proud of that. But uh, really, this, this isn't what it was about. While Hellenism sometimes opposed itself to Christianity, in terms of Christianity being a barbarian creed, actually, it was often called the barbarian philosophy, uh, and Christians opposed themselves to Hellenism as being beyond the pale of that which was relevant to salvation, these were, in fact, far from absolute oppositions. And Christians could, in fact, be good Hellenes, and often were. It was this kind of elite culture Hellenism that Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the most accomplished Hellenes of his day, as we mentioned, which is why his friend Basil of Caesarea sort of forced him to become a bishop. He was just too cultured and uh, smooth-talking to uh, not to be 
made use of. It's this kind of cultural Hellenism that Gregory means when responding to the edict on education. He demands of the dead Julian whether he thinks Hellenism is his personal chattel. What, you think you own Hellenism? Uh, it's also this kind of Hellenism, this educational uh, elite accomplishment, which the late 4th century church father John Chrysostom himself, such a fluent speaker of Greek that he gained himself the title Chrysostomos, which means golden-mouthed, right? As well as becoming Bishop of Constantinople. Chrysostom denounces Hellenic education as an inculcator of wickedness and damnation. I told you this was complex cultural territory. Okay, that's some background. It may be confusing to some. It may be helpful. I hope it's interesting. I hope it's helpful. But let's talk about Julian. Now, Julian's Hellenism is not any of the Hellenisms we've just talked about. But it, then, on the other hand, it is. It's, it's a mobilization of this whole complex, um, actually partly identitarian political idea of Greekness or Hellenic culture as a whole but fashioning it into something new, right? Julian's Hellenism utilized some of the innovative weapons from the arsenal of Christianity for self-identification and exclusion. But these were framed, as so often with totally contemporary esoteric movements, as a return to the old ways. And we see this again and again in the history of esotericism. To Julian, Hellenism was a divinely protected and divinely revealed cultural phenomenon based in Greek philosophy, religion, and art, perfected by the Roman political constitution. But despite this seeming pluralism, already present in its nature, this late antique Hellenism was formulated as distinct from other discourses, notably Christianity, through divine decree. And the mixing of what the emperor saw as discrete cultural traditions, such as the Christian betrayal of the ancestral god of the Jews for their newer conception of the divine, was impious. So there's a strong discourse or a very strong, interesting interplay in Julian's Hellenism between, on the one hand, the, the actual messiness of the whole vast range of culture that he's trying to bring into the fold, and then the strong demarcations of purity and that which is to be rejected wholeheartedly, on the other hand. And this really reminds me of, among other things, of uh, 20th century and 21st century identitarian politics generally speaking, where people try to invent a pure tradition that we're going to all go back to the golden age that never existed, and then talk about the en enemy within and how it's utterly foreign and utterly evil and utterly dirty and must be uh, driven out like an impurity. This is kind of the vibe we're getting from Julian, actually, vis-a-vis -vis the Christians and other undesirable elements like the Epicureans. In fact, there is sort of even uh, a kind of ethnic discourse within Julian's Hellenism to a certain extent. Because each people, each nation, natio in Latin or genos, ethnos in Greek, each of these peoples is assigned an ethnic god, which is an emanation of the first cause, further elaborated with divine hypostases a la Iamblichus. So each nation actually is divinely required to maintain its character. Like Egyptians have to worship Isis and Osiris. It's the divine order that they do that. And the Jews have to worship their god, and it's good that they do. They cannot betray their ancestral gods. So much for the common people. They have their traditional ways and must follow them, such as the divine order. But we note, again, that Julian will be 
and this is something we'll talk about more in detail in a moment, will also sort of counter the Christian narrative of a universal savior God by saying, well, there's also universal savior gods that all of mankind depends on, notably Helios Mithras with a, a sprinkling of a Asclepius. But there is an interesting tension here in Julian's thought, right? The ethnic gods are great, and the idea that we must be true to them is fine, I guess, but how do the trans-ethnic cultural elite of educated Hellenes, like the Mithras-worshipping Julian, fit into the picture here? Well, this isn't a contradiction, gentle listener. It is, in fact, a silent division of society into two classes. There's the normal folks, and the educated, esoteric elite, the paideotoi. The educated elite who know philosophy, who know Hellenism, understand the fundamental unity behind the many faces of traditional polytheism because they understand the truth about the gods, i.e. Yamblikan metaphysics. Thus, the esoteric initiate class, to which Julian and his elite colleagues belong, are not bound to these narrow ethno-religious constraints in the same way as most people because they've been educated. Paideia, or education, is thus absolutely central to Julian's program, not only as a cultural criterion for membership of the elite classes of the empire, as it had been and would remain under Christian uh, regimes, so it, it, it is that for sure, but it's not just that. It's also the gateway to higher philosophical and spiritual development. Basically, the culmination of Paideia for Julian is initiation, cultic initiation, and learning theurgy along the lines of Iamblichus. Thus, Julian's edict on education, which excluded Christians from receiving the traditional Hellenic paideia, was exclusionary both in the obvious realms of political and literary elitism, for which paideia formed the criterion. So in other words, we're going to keep them from learning rhetoric so they can't involve themselves in politics. That is true. But it was also, in my reading, an exclusion of Christians from esoteric spiritual realms of truth which the true Hellenes could continue to access. And it was, I think, meant to be this kind of exclusion. This is a kind of broad-scale, uh, empire-wide attempt to exclude the profane from the inner sanctum of the initiatory temple, if you see what I mean. Um, there's a very interesting text from our period called On the Gods in the World, a short religio-philosophic work which has been described as a pagan catechism by Athanasiadi, and it outlines a number of truly fascinating dynamics of the kind of Hellenism Julian is promoting. Uh, so fascinating is this text, in fact, that we're going to discuss it with expert help in the very next episode. But On the Gods in the World is attributed to one Seleustius or Seleutius, possibly Julian's prefect of the East, and it kind of reads as a late antique manifesto for a philosophic platonizing polytheism, uh, a counter- religion to Christianity, one might say. But what we're interested in here in the present context is its take on the spiritualization of education. The soul, which fails to gain virtue, arete, through paideia, through being educated, is going to be punished in the life to come, right? So, so this is basically taking ideas about post-mortem punishment, which are already present in Plato and Platonism to some degree, but bringing these in line with the new Christian ideas of universal salvation and damnation. Uh, it's like, get educated people, your soul is at stake. This is kind of a, a vibe that we get from On the Gods in the World that we don't really find in earlier uh, takes on postmortem chastisement. Anyway, 
let's turn toward the kind of apparatus of esoteric tradition building that Julian gives to his Hellenism, his his religious Hellenism. Uh, Julian's Hellenism exhibits a ripe flowering of many of the key aspects of esoteric religion and philosophy that keen listeners to the podcast will be very familiar with based on what we've talked about earlier with esoteric Platonism. There is a very strong discourse of tradition. Plato himself is directly inspired by the gods. So are the Chaldean oracles uh, and more generally approved oracular traditions from throughout the entirety of Hellenic history. But, of course, everything has to be read along the lines of Iamblichus as a sort of master key, whereby all these canonical sources of truth are to be interpreted. As we discussed with Jeremy Swist, the major schools of Greek philosophy, the Platonist, the Peripatetic, the Stoic, and even the Cynic, are harmonized by Julian through an appeal to a kind of perennial philosophy idea. The term Julian actually uses is alethe paradosis, the true tradition, the true handing down, which lies behind all the apparent differences. So they can all be harmonized, only the Epicurean school, with its denial of divine providence, is to be rejected. The Epicureans are out there with the Christians as just atheoi, atheists. So there is the core of Julian's esoteric lineage of truth. Basically, you've got this sort of inspired Platonist tradition. However, really, all of Hellenic uh, literature and art and culture has been divinely inspired. So the best of more than a thousand years of Mediterranean culture is basically granted authoritative status because of its divine origin. Anything from Homer to Euripides to Iamblichus can be read as a legitimate canonical source of divine truth. This is a very broad traditional esoteric canon, right? (laughs) Um, Potentially drawing from across a huge range of Hellenic sources and even sources like Iamblichus who are Hellenic only by acculturation. Now, What's so esoteric about it? We'll come to that in a minute. But let's first turn toward the the barbarians, right? Are the Chaldean oracles Hellenic for Julian? No. Uh, Julian thinks, like the readers of the oracles in antiquity seem to have thought that they're Chaldean. But Julian's Hellenism, of course, accommodates these honorary Hellenes, the wise barbarian peoples so beloved of Platonist lineage building. Think of Plutarch reading Egyptian mythology, as we discussed in episode 68, Apuleius's Platonist initiation into the cult of Isis that we discussed in episode 73, and in general, the the discourse of what uh, John Walbridge has called Platonic Orientalism, which we tend to call uh, Platonist Orientalism here. So these chosen, approved, uh, wise foreigners are uh, also grist for the mill, And the Jews very much tend to be lumped into this category by later Platonists as well and by later, um, you know, Hellenic intellectuals. This makes for a very interesting situation where our discourse of absolute truth in Julian is both very cosmopolitan and just vast. The legitimate sources of divinely inspired truth actually far outnumber the illegitimate ones, which are basically Epicureanism and the Christian scriptures, (laughs) such that Julian's Hellenism has a sort of inbuilt, easygoing latitudinarianism or toleration in a certain way, because just about everything that he learned at school is divinely inspired wisdom, right? When he was reading Euripides, it was divinely inspired wisdom. When he's reading Homer, it was divinely inspired wisdom. But how are we to tell the true from the false in such a polysemous web 
of cultural forms, right? Because it can't all be divinely inspired wisdom. Well, in the first place, obviously you use the normal uh, process of cultural assimilation, often called the Interpretatio Greca, where, for example, if you find the Near Eastern goddess Kubele, you say, ah, she's Athena, right? Or you find the Egyptian god Thoth and you say, ah, he's Hermes, this sort of thing. But at a deeper level, how do you do it? This reading of culture for Hellenic truths must take place through esoteric hermeneutics, right? Julian specifically addresses the subject of the esoteric reading of myth, which is, you know, always the first place Platonist readers look for hidden truths expressed as enigmata, as an esoteric text. Julian bigs up Plato's myths and says they're, you know, absolutely crucial for Plato's um, philosophy. And myths in general, he reads as expressing esoteric truths along Platonist lines. We've seen this reading approach many times already on the podcast among esoteric Platonists, but what's maybe new here, what Julian brings to the table, uh, and also on the gods in the world brings to the table, as we shall see, is the degree to which this approach to myth has become canonized and indeed formulated in terms of what we might almost call a kind of literary theory. Julian gives us examples of this reading methodology in action. He interprets the story of the Tower of Babel from the Hebrew scriptures. Um, remember, the, the Jews are cool for Julian, and their God is cool, and their God is real. So their writings are legitimate revelations where we expect to find hidden truths. And he does his exegesis of the Tower of Babel in his anti-Christian tract. So he's, he's like, you know, Christians, look at you with your dumbass, newfangled, uh, forged scriptures. When you have this real, genuine revelation from God that you're turning your back on, look at what the Tower of Babel story tells us. And he does exegesis of the myth of Kubela and Attis as well, in metaphysical terms. So this is all pretty standard stuff for listeners to this podcast who've been following our coverage of Platonism and the development of esoteric reading uh, in antiquity. But another thing I think Julian adds to the mix here is a kind of political wisdom lineage. And this is really, really interesting. Uh, we see this in his satirical work, The Caesars, sometimes also called The Banquet, in which there's this whole line of approved kings and emperors of the Roman past who are having dinner with the gods, right? Now, not everyone makes the cut. The Neros and Caligulas don't make it past the doorman, but all the approved uh, good rulers are there dining with the gods, and each is assigned a tutelary god by the gods themselves. So Hermes is there as the sort of maitre d', and he's, you know, dishing out tutelary gods. Julian's is Helios Mithras, unsurprisingly. Interesting here in the lineage is the ancient Roman king Numo Pompilio. So he is a uh, pre-republic sort of quasi-legendary ruler of Rome. He probably was a real historical person, but the Romans had a lot of uh, folklore associated with him. And he appears in Plutarch's Life of Numa as a kind of philosopher king, which is probably Julian's main source for this guy. So Numa is famous for having founded Rome's religious rites, like the Vestal Virgin sorority and this sort of thing. And Julian is at pains to make Numa into a solar worshiper. So Numa founded the Vestal Virgins, and they, through some kind of esoteric uh, pushing of the evidence, Julian is able to kind of refashion retrospectively into a cult of Sol Invictus Helios, Emperor Helios. And so the, the cult of Emperor Helios then has deep roots far back in the Roman political past. 
right? Uh, this is what you might call um, political massaging of the past to to bring it in line with the present. Something we see a lot in in esotericism, but uh, very interesting to see it in the playing out on the political field, right? So we have an esoteric wisdom lineage preserved in inspired texts of the Hellenic canon, and the keys to reading that lineage through esoteric hermeneutics as developed by the Platonist tradition. And we also have a kind of sacred history of Rome, in which mankind's salvation plays out through divinely guided Roman emperors, who are all Hellenic, incidentally, because for Julian, Rome is totally Hellenic. That's another really interesting uh, bit of cultural massaging he does. He just says the Romans are Greeks for all intents and purposes. Julian, naturally, partakes of both these traditions, right? The ancient textual kind of canon full of esoteric wisdom of the gods and the actual ruling the state of Rome uh, stream. And he is thus, as the priest king of King Helios, something like a representative of the divine on earth. So while the tradition for Julian can be found in ancient texts, handed down through the true tradition, it's very much a living thing. So what he's doing here might be seen as current events read as sacred history. This isn't sacred history that's not that at some point miracles stopped and the, the story ended. No, the, the, the miracles are still happening. Divine inspiration continues and it's up to elite human beings and especially the priest emperor to make sure that the conduits of sacred wisdom and power remain open between the gods and us, despite the impious actions of Christians and others who have so angered the gods. And this brings us to the interaction between the elite action, you know, what the elite are supposed to do, what the Hellene theurgists are supposed to do, and Julian's almost dispensationalist take on human history, to use a modern Christian term. What do I mean by that? Well, acute listeners will remember our coverage of Yamblichus's idea of the theurgic bodhisattvas in episode 136. These are the perfected souls of theurgists and philosophers, which, having the potential to enjoy a blessed noetic existence for eternity, voluntarily return to the cosmos so as to kind of raise the spiritual state of the whole through their channeling of the gods' influences here below. So these guys are doing a form of self-sacrifice for the good of the whole. Well, my reading of Julian is that he saw himself as basically taking up the gauntlet and trying to be one of those salvific divine agents here in the world. But on a political stage, which one suspects Iamblichus never even would have imagined possible, um, the Iamblichian sage, as we saw in our special episode where we looked at Eunapius's coverage of Iamblichus, the Iamblichian sage operates more or less in private, uh, hanging out in his estates with the chosen companions and discoursing on philosophy and doing rituals and having visions granted by the gods. Julian is going to try to put those guys in charge of the empire. <laughs> Let's look in a little more detail at how this works. As we said, the taps of divine inspiration are not closed, but they are emphatically not open to all of mankind equally. Oracles, dreams, and inspiration, enthusiasmos, uh, these are the raw materials of, for Julian's picture of how absolute knowledge is conveyed to some of mankind. But as Julian writes in Against the Galileans, quote, the spirit that comes to mankind from the gods rarely and to only a few, nor do all men share in it, nor at all times, end of quote. So there's a certain dispensationalism as to um, it's, it's not just this kind of free gift of the spirit that flows everywhere. The indigenous oracles 
the old school classical oracles, Julian admits, have fallen silent, as have those of the Hebrews and the Egyptians. So that sounds a bit like the taps have been closed off. But no, says Julian, Zeus took pity on the Hellenes and gave them a specific dispensation through the sacred arts. By the sacred arts, the Hirai um, Technai, Julian can only be referring to something like Jamblichian theurgy, as propounded by Jamblichus, as taught to Julian by Maximus, the um, a few teachers removed uh, filial descendant of Jamblichus, the member of the school of Jamblichus. On the political level, Julian set about restoring the traditional pagan priesthoods, which had fallen on very sad times throughout the empire, to something of their former level of influence. But clearly he didn't intend for them just to be doing the same old stuff that they'd always been doing. Uh, although it's unclear to how a truly Julianic priesthood might have eventually functioned, it's fairly certain that Julian, as Pontifex Maximus, the greatest priest, the head priest, was intent on implementing a culture of theurgic ritual on an empire-wide basis. As we know, he was enthusiastic to the point of gaucherie in his public sacrifices and ritual worship of the gods. Ammianus describes his massive public slaughterings uh, in, a, in a kind of embarrassed tone. Like, he loves Julian, but uh, man, he went a little too over the top with the sacrifices. And uh, taking into account the Yamblichian emphasis on theurgic acts as the true source of human connection with the gods, and indeed bloodletting as a true source of human connection with the gods, it seems that Julian's priestly elite was envisioned in a distinctly post-classical form, one that involved institutionalized theurgy in a state context. From Iamblichus, Julian knew and accepted the so-called Chaldean oracles as genuine divine revelations, and it's clear that for Julian, as for Iamblichus and Seleucius, the oracles are a kind of scriptural precedent for theurgic ritual as a basis for esoteric knowledge and fit seamlessly within the broader discourse of Hellenism. So our situation in the 4th century, as Julian sees it, is that the normal sources of divine communication have dried up, but Jupiter, Zeus, by his providential dispensation, has sent theurgy down specifically to the Hellenes to replace those older forms. The theurgic priests of Julian's religion, if they had ever, you know, got off the ground, would have been powerful religious specialists actively working for the salvation of the world by channeling the divine powers down through powerful ritual acts like mass sacrifice. Uh, Ceteris paribus, and there's a lot of Ceteris in this comparison that I'm about to draw, but it's kind of interesting, so I'll draw it anyway. Ceteris paribus, had Julian's Hellenic priesthood actually survived and grown into an institution as a state religion of Rome, I wonder if it wouldn't have looked something vaguely like Tibetan Buddhism under the old Lamaocracy, the rule of the Lamas, or maybe even had certain things in common, very, very small things, but, but important ones with the Aztec regime. In both cases, you have a specialized class who do a lot of bloodletting, and they're doing it for the good of all uh, reality, for the world, to keep the world going right? To bring down the power of the gods into the world. Anyway, what about the lay people of Julian's empire, the non-priests? For the many, Julian recommends the worship of a group of salvation deities, as we mentioned earlier. Sometimes he uses distinctly Christian-sounding language in his description of these deities, and it's, it's pretty clear that 
Julian kind of, whether actually realizing it or just subconsciously understanding it, knows that people nowadays in the Empire need a big god that we all agree on. Or maybe the, the state needs people to need that. It's unclear. Anyway, he definitely is propounding a kind of counter overarching god. Despite his um, protestations that every ethnos has to have its own ethnic god, they better get with Helios Mithras or else. Asclepius, long associated with ideas of initiated salvation, as the writings of Aelius Aristides show, whom we talked about in the podcast, um, and seen by some Christians as indeed a competitor to Christ in this period, Asclepius is very important to Julian. He had often cured the emperor of illnesses, and Julian eulogizes him at length in a pointed passage in his Against the Christians, where Asclepius, unlike Christ, cures not only bodies but souls. So he's what the Christians claim Christ to be, except Christ isn't. However, it is in Helios Mithras, with whom Asclepius was often associated in late antiquity, that we find the savior deity who Julian hopes will provide the sort of heart of the new theology for the empire. And it's in Julian's Hymn to the Sun that we see his most consistent attempt to frame a unified Hellenistic religion or Hellenismos, the orthodoxy of which is guaranteed by constant reference to Plato and the wisdom of the East. Mithras, although, as Julian says, is a foreign deity, uh, provides for the Hellenes, when associated with Helios, the noetic mediator between the transcendent one and the world of particulars, with a saving power reminiscent of the Nicene Creed. This salvation occurs via the Chaldean doctrine of ascent along the solar rays. So let's imagine if Julian had um, succeeded. This is a bit of counterfactual history, which is not really allowed, but who, who's going to stop me? A Julian one, uh, his Hellenism became the official religion of the empire, and predictably enough, it was very popular. What do we have? We have theurgic priests of some kind. Uh, it's difficult to speculate what that's going to look like, but it's going to look pretty uh, weird and wonderful. And a populace whose you know, belief in their own salvation is based on the noetic mediation of uh, Mithras, Helios, the sun. And we, we talked with Jeremy Swist about the kind of multi-level emanatory sun system or sun hypostasis that we're talking about here. And basically, they're praying that the, um, the rays of the sun might uh, fall beneficially on them and draw them up in ascent back to their true noetic home. If that sounds like an implausible thing for a, you know, a giant empire-spanning state religion, because it's a little bit weird and esoteric, well, look, Christianity was also very weird and esoteric, as we've discussed at length in this podcast, and yet it somehow ends up becoming the state religion and indeed the kind of hegemonic religion for an entire huge region of the earth. The esoteric, when made into a tool of politics, is dangerous stuff. Not least because absolute rulers sometimes drink the esoteric Kool-Aid and go and do crazy stuff. I personally find something tragically heroic in what Julian did under the influence of his esoteric Platonist Kool-Aid, but I'm still, I hope, clear-sighted enough to see that what he was fighting for was not, well, traditional Hellenism. He was actually fighting for the rebirth of a nation through violence justified in part by esoteric truth claims belonging to himself and his fellow elite Hellenes. 
he had the gods on his side, in other words. Now, one needn't be an esotericist to think one has the gods on one's side. Of course not. Uh, but I think something especially weird happens when the gods on the side of the state are gods of an esoteric, initiatory kind. Think of the Mormon theocracy of Deseret, or of present-day Iran under the Ayatollahs. These are not just any old theocracies. These are theocracies with a particular esoteric flavor about them. If we, if we were to contrast, for example, uh, Afghanistan under the Taliban, which I would say is, roughly speaking, an exoteric uh, Islamic theocracy, and then look at uh, Iran as a comparandum, you see the difference. <laughs> it's different. So esotericism and politics... What happens when they come together? Well, lots of interesting and crazy stuff. This episode has been quite meandering, reflecting on some of the weird stuff that happens when culture meets politics meets the esoteric in the 4th century and beyond. But as we promised earlier, our next episode will cover Seleucius's On the Gods in the World, one of the most fascinating and most deeply esoteric texts from antiquity. And if you don't believe me, just wait, gentle listener. Join us for that, and until then... Be like the true unity of all religions, accessible only to the theurgic priestly elite, and stay esoteric.